Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for joining us on Three Women with Three Ways. We are the show that tackles some pretty tough topics sometimes. And today we have, um, an, I think, a very unusual topic. Let me fix my sound bed there. Um, we have a very unusual topic. And I say it's unusual not to the people who are familiar with it, but to the general population. I believe it's an unusual topic and one they don't normally think of. My guest uh, is Dr. Ruth Buzzy. Dr. Buzzy, thank you for joining us. Are you there? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm here. Okay, terrific. Um, The reason that we have invited Dr. Buzzy to be on the show is because she has been uh, one of the lead authors in a study called Pregnant Adolescents as Perpetrators and Victims of Intimate Partner Violence. Now, we've talked a lot about domestic violence, intimate partner violence, um, uh, and we've talked some about pregnancy as it, revol- as it is involved with abuse and violence. But I, quite frankly, Dr. Buzzy, have never given a lot of thought to pregnant adolescents as perpetrators, let alone victims. What led you to do this study? So let me just give you a little bit of background about that study. So the data for the study was generated from a program that we um, developed to address the needs of uh, pregnant teens. And uh, that particular project was funded by the Adolescent Family Life Program, which was and no longer a program that is funded, was funded by the Office of Population Affairs, a Department of Health and Human Services, to try to identify innovative intervention to help us gain knowledge about what works best to improve outcomes among pregnant teens. And so in uh, designing the intervention, you know, intimate partner violence, so IPV, was one of the targeted outcomes because we know that female adolescents ages 16 to 24 years, you know, they are like really have the highest you know, um, prevalence of intimate partner violence. And they always experience physical abuse during pregnancy. And so when they're talking about the post, being, them being victims, that's being victimized. Right, right. What led but you to, then, you to know, look when, at the perpetration as well? So a lot of it was also like my own experience. I've worked with pregnant teens for quite some time and have had experience, you know, while I'm also, you know, a clinical social worker. And so I've had conversations with couples and I noticed that those issues of the women actually being the perpetrator is something that comes up. And so when we designed that program to address intimate partner violence, we decided that it's important to look at the whole spectrum and look at like what does IPV look like in terms of women being a victim, being a, a perpetrator, or actually engaging in reciprocal um, violence, which means, you know, the woman is a, is also a victim and also a perpetrator. And there are some studies, you know, that also identify uh, perpetration of female as an issue, but they are very limited studies and especially limited among adolescents. So this is why we decided that that would be important for us to look into that. Okay. Um, I looked at some statistics, and uh, basically I'm I'm trying to remember where I – oh, March of Dimes. And the March of Dimes said that one in six pregnant women has uh, has experienced abuse. Is that consistent with what you have found? Right. So what I – you know, the data that I have, and it kind of led, you you know, the way kind of I was conceptualizing, you know, the problem is that we know the data suggests that between 5% and 38% adolescent girls experience IPV either prior 
or during pregnancy. And then, you know, among pregnant adult women, you know, we only, you know, have about 4% to 24%. So IPV during pregnancy is more common for adolescents than for older women. And hmm. then we Why do you think, know why is that, that? Why would that be? Do you have any sure, theories? You know, it's related, right, you know, it's like, you know, related to maturity, you know, related to being prepared for the pregnancy, having better competencies to resolve conflict. Uh, and we also know that, um, you know, many times the pregnancy of a pregnant teen is actually, you know, as a result of a relationship with an older man. So sometimes there is inequality in the relationship, which makes, you know, the pregnant teen or the female, you know, less, you know, capable of being more assertive. So she is more likely to be affected, you know, by the man in that way. And so the, she, you know, and, and many times, you know, if you ask me why, you know, women perpetrate is, you know, many times they protect themselves. Many times they don't have the skills to negotiate peaceful resolution. There was stress related, you know, to a pregnancy. So there are many factors that can explain why a woman, you know, is going to be a perpetrator in, you know, in, in a pregnancy. Okay. Um, and that seems to be exacerbated by the teenage, the, the adolescence. It's a, it's more the, so than in the general adult population, right? Right, right, yeah. right. yes. We definitely okay. see that more among teens, yeah. Okay. So um, when when that happens, what forms does that abuse take generally? So we usually, when you know, just to kind of make sure that we have the same definition, you know, when we talk about IPV, you know, intimate partner violence, we talk about physical violence, we talk about sexual violence, uh, threat. Uh, or physical or sexual violence and then psychological or emotional abuse. And so, um, you know, from our study, um, females participate in all of those, um, you know, forms of IPV. We did not specifically look into sexual violence in this, you know, study because we, the population of the study, uh, females ages 15 to 18, and then, you know, any kind of disclosure of sexual abuse during that age creates many issues that require reporting and being a study and you know, obtaining that information in the context of a study, we did not specifically explore that. We did ask about a history of abuse, but we did not focus specifically on sexual violence. Okay. All right. And and what 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 kind of a study was this? Is it was it the kind of study where you interviewed the people and talked one on one, or was it an like an online survey kind of study? How did you collect I your know. information? Yeah, we asked them uh, because, you know, some of the, you know, uh, questions in the study are very sensitive. So they completed the survey, you know, w you know, uh, in a, with a you know, computer. So they had, they sat, you know, next to a computer and they completed the question. So there was no face-to-face -face interactions with, the, with an interviewer. They used, you know, we learned that, that type of data, kind of form of the collection of data actually increase accuracy and the likelihood of getting, you know, uh, better information. Sure, it's because you have the anonymity. Computer. Right, yeah. it's an audio computer assisted self-interview, right. And that makes sense. I mean, if somebody's asking me a question in person, yeah, I kind of filter it. I, I might not be as right. honest if I think it might be something embarrassing or whatever for me, um, then if I'm just sitting in front of a computer and clicking, right. I would probably be more honest. Unless it's one of those yeah. unless it's one of those consumer surveys and then I lie like crazy on those computer surveys. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <you're laughs> but right. that's just me, yes. okay? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So 
how many people were in your study? What was your, your yeah. um, sample? Okay, so we have um, uh, recruited a total of 249 teens, ages 15 to 18. Okay. And um, the majority, they were predominantly African American and Hispanic. Okay. And was that just the way it was, or, or or that it fell, or was that the way you were designing the study? You know, I I think that this is kind of reflect, you know, the um, um, kind of prevalence of pregnancy. You know, we are more likely to see pregnancies at that age among African American and Hispanic um, youth. Okay. So it kind of right. reflects community patterns. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it was representative of community patterns. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So you had um, about 250 um, people that you surveyed, and were you able to find out what types of abuse they suffered most most recently or most uh, prevalently as victims? I want to talk about them being victims first, and then we're going to talk more about them being perpetrators. Um, so as oh, okay. victims, did you find that there was a particular type of abuse that they seemed to suffer more than other types? So, you know, so again, what's interesting in the study is that we found out that our pregnant adolescents were more likely to be perpetrators than victims. 24% of pregnant adolescents reported actually having perpetrator, which, you know, is like 60. And in terms of being victims, only 12.2% or 30. So the girls were more likely to be perpetrators than, you know, um, than uh, victims. And so majority of them reported um, actually um, in, so 60, the 60 that I mentioned, they were actually reported physically assaulting their partner. So wow. 60 of them, yes, 60 of them actually, you know, use physical force, you know, against their partner. And so that, you know, and so they were, it was much more higher, you know, for females against men than men against females. And in addition to physically assaulting partners, they were also engaging in psychological aggression. And then even like 12 of them reported actually causing injury to a partner. Wow. Which wow. That was a little, I'm yeah, assuming which, you were surprised by these findings. Were you surprised? Um. So... Kind of, but again, because I have worked with pregnant teens for like a while, and uh, so I was not completely surprised. Maybe some, but again, I am very familiar with, you know, the work with teens in general, and so I was, you know, kind of surprised, but not completely surprised. Because hmm. it was surprising to me. I mean, uh, you know, as a layperson who hasn't been involved with this, I was really surprised by those numbers. I thought, wow, is there something about the pregnancy that that would create more aggression? Uh, How did you come up with any reasons that this might have been the case? So, you see, so like one of the um, limitations of the study is that it's, you know, it's the cross-sectional design, you know, it's just one that was not very longitudinal. So it's hard to really, you know, we did not, you know, we probably should, you know, if, you know, if you're thinking me what I would like to do moving forward, I would like to look a little bit more into it. But I think in general it can suggest, you know, some distress during pregnancy, um, maybe, you know, some kind of, you know, a fear of power as a behavior of self-defense, uh, just in general, you know, kind of uh, destructive communication skills, you know, that make, you know, dealing with anger, um, 
you know, more kind of uh, focused on aggression versus more peaceful uh, communication, you know, kind of channels. Um, And uh, maybe, you know, and I did not talk to you yet about, like, risk factors that were found to be associated, but teens who were perpetrators were more likely to report a history of being, you know, experiencing various forms of violence. So it is possible that, you know, one adopts normative beliefs toward partner violence through previous so we, experiences. So we do, we, we learn what we, we do what we know. If we, if we have exactly. been around we violence, then we're more likely to be violent. Um, okay, but before we get too much into the risk factors, I want to uh, ask another question. So, first of all, uh-huh. we found out in the study uh, of these nearly 250 girls that they were more likely to be perpetrators than to be victims. But right. That, but then when you're talking about the, having had a history of, of violence, um, how how did you separate? How did you know? Uh, were you talking about an incident, or were you talking about lifetime experiences? So, for example, if a girl has had a history of violence and being victimized um, uh, by that violence, um, she she might be more likely to perpetrate. She might be more likely to strike out first. Um, mm-hmm. But how do you know if she didn't have that history? How do you know? Um, Gosh, I'm I'm kind of going all over the board here. I'm trying to phrase this question. How do you know that they weren't victims as well? I mean, what if they recognize the symptoms of, uh, you know, that that for example they were going to be hit or whatever? Um, because people can often tell the signs that something is going to come from their partner. What if they just headed it off first? I mean, how do you know? that this perpetration had nothing to do with a sense of of, of um, uh, danger at the time. Right. So this is like, you know, the limitation of that study, that we did not really look at, like, causes, you know, that what made okay. you actually engage in violence. We only asked them, you know, how often a type of um you know, violence, you know, occurred in the current relationship. And we did not ask, you know, why did you do that or what happened? So we asked, like, how often did something like, you know, and we have we had a list of, you know, many um, various forms of violence, you know, how often they happen in the relationship. But then we asked them, you know, if they, you know, were abused before, you know, did they uh, witness uh, community violence? So we could see a relationship between, between perpetration currently and the history. But we were not able to really understand what made, you know, the, the perpetrator to actually engage in those violent behaviors. This is something for my okay. next study. Yes, yes, and we were talking about that before we went on the air, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, These the studies are so have to be so limited in, in scope. They have yes. to be so tiny that you really need to do several of them in order to get a real picture right. of what's going on. Okay. And then, of course, the mm-hmm. whole issue of funding and, you know, doing the studies and yeah. getting them crafted and all that becomes um, uh, problematic. But nevertheless... Yeah. Um, you did have this this rather startling and surprising to me anyway um, revelation that most of these teen pregnant girls were perpetrators rather than victims of intimate partner violence. That that surprises me in a way, but that makes me question because you'll hear people citing statistics about um, just as many men are victims of violence as women, da-da-da-da. But if you really look at those statistics, it's you're kind of being told apples and oranges because usually right. women are are retaliating with their violence they're they're not beginning they they're not the initiators of it i mean there's all sorts of things that go with it that explain it it's not the same as you know she comes home and just throws a punch at him it's a different kind of of 
um, scenario for women who are perpetrators. And so I'm wondering if that's the same thing with the pregnant adolescents, if it's if there's a bigger picture there. So we'll have to wait for your next study on that one. Right. But, you know, when we look at, like, yeah, when we look at, like, yeah. reciprocal, you know, IPV, only 8% participated in reciprocal IPV. So you see there were quite a few teens that did not participate in reciprocal, which means they were not victims. And nevertheless, they were perpetrators. So there were, it's not like really always the case that she is responding and she's not the initiating. It's true that overall, IPV is definitely more kind of an issue that affects females than males, but we have to keep in mind this is not always a case, and so how we do better understand it and how we intervene. Yes, yes. So, um, so let's look now at those risk factors. If we are an, an organization that helps pregnant teenagers, pregnant adolescents, are there warning signs? Are there are there things that we can look at to go, whoa, this person is at risk of either being a victim or being a perpetrator? Mm-hmm. What did you so learn? Let me tell you like, yeah, so let me tell you like what we found, you know, in other study, in what, you know, factors were correlated with, you know, being a perpetrator. So what we found that pregnant adolescents who reported physically assaulting their partner in comparison to those who did not physically, you know, assault their partners, like, were more likely to be African-American or Hispanic. Um, They reported more than one lifetime drug or substance abuse. They were more likely to repeat a grade in school they were more likely to be affected by moderate to severe depressive symptoms. And the list goes on. Um, They were more uh, likely to report prior physical or sexual assault as well as verbal abuse to be, you know, to experience. They were more likely to be in a community where they witnessed violence. They were more likely to uh, steal from a store, to go to school drunk or high, to stay out with friends after past 2 a.m. So there were so many risk factors that, you know, were present for those who assaulted their partners. So everything that your mother told us not to do, Yes, there's a reason she told us not to do that, isn't there? (laughs) Exactly, exactly, exactly. But you could see how, you know, so many risk factors kind of can, in a way, predict. And of course, we cannot say predict because that type of research design does not allow us to create, you know, to kind of make, you know, conclusions about causation. However, you see that those risk factors are present when females perpetrate. Yeah, yeah. Were, did you find similar risk factors for those teenagers who were victims? And so those, no, those factors were more likely to be present for those who were the perpetrators. Okay. They were less and likely to show, yes. Yeah, go ahead. No, so they were less likely to show uh, among the victims than the perpetrators. Okay. So, and this is, I, I know you didn't study this, but it makes me another question for future studies. How do those risks, risk factors for, for being a perpetrator compare to teenage males who are perpetrators? That would be an interesting question too, wouldn't it? Um yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure there will be stimulus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, okay, so we're looking at some risk factors here uh, for perpetrating. We're looking at not as many risk factors for being a victim. Um, As a matter of fact, 
fewer, much fewer vict- uh, list mm-hmm. risk factors for being a victim. Um, but what about socioeconomic? Uh, were any of those? Did you find any correlations on socioeconomic status? Um, if, for example, if you're poor, are you more likely to be a per- perpetrator or a victim or anything like that? So. The girls in our study were from similar background when it comes to poverty. So poverty for us did not come up as a factor. However, generally speaking, when we look at IPV in general and risk factors, poverty is definitely a factor. Mm-hmm. And uh, as well as exposure to community violence and to a history of, you know, some type of abuse. So this is in general. But again, for our population, because it was a pretty uh, homogeneous sample, so that, you know, did not come out as, an, as a factor. But in general, I would say, yes, poverty is definitely a factor. Okay. And when we're talking in your study about, you you talked about physical assault, psychological aggression, Um, how did you define physical assault? Because physical assault could be a push or a shove or a slap. It could also be a punch in the face or a kick in the ribs. How did you define physical assault? And did you see any variation in that? Were milder pushes and shoves more likely to be uh, how the, the pregnant teen perpetrated, or was it? more vicious? How, how did you dis- distinguish physical assault? Yeah. So we had, you know, we used, you know, for that, we measured, you know, IPV using a tool that is, you know, very well known, you know, which is called the um, um, CST, which is the... Um, Goodness, what are the, uh, let me see, what are the, which is a very known, um, um, yep. what is it? Forgot like the name, hold on a second, I'll get it. Yeah. Conf- it's a standard no? measure is, for types of domestic right, right. violence. It's called, I'm yeah. sorry, it's yeah. called like the conflict tactic scale, you know, which is like, you know, this is very, you know, commonly used to measure uh, violence. And so it includes, um, for example, you know, when we talk about, um, and you know, physical assault, you know, it's like I threw something at my partner that could hurt. I twisted my partner's arm or hair. Um, I pushed or shoved my partner. I used a knife. So some of them are very, you know, extreme, and yet, you know, we got responses that they participated in this versus, you know, some other, you know, kind of uh, manifestation of violence, like I shouted it or yelled, I, um, you know, I, um, I mean, beat up, you know, it's pretty strong, but I, I uh, insulted my, which this kind of actually, you know, more like um, psychological. Uh, but we had, it's like really like a spectrum. Um, and with, it also includes like some injury, you know, whether or not you actually sustained, you know, some physical pain as a result of that, or even if you had to go to the hospital. Uh, it includes like I choke my partner. So we had like a really wide spectrum of behavior that we measured, and uh, the physical assault actually, inc- you know, includes those extreme measures. And there were also some injuries reported, which definitely, you know, are m- much more severe. Sure. So in your sample, in the in the nearly 250 girls that you surveyed. Um, did you find that most of uh, the, that reported perpetrating violence, did you notice which end of the spectrum they were at or were they all over? Was it um, more at the, the open-handed slap or more at the I injured him and he had to go to the hospital end of the spectrum? No, so uh, it was more like the more mild, you know, if you can say mild, uh, because, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, the more extreme would be the one related to to the injury. And then when it comes to injury, we had fewer, only 12 reported, you know, actually causing injury. 
uh, versus, you know, perpetrators. However, when it comes to males, you know, 16, you know, know, were reported to cause injuries. So we always see that, you know, that uh, perpetration, uh, females, you know, are more likely to inflict less extreme forms of violence than males. Um, so, yeah, so only only 12, you know, en- engaged in the more extreme forms of violence versus 60 who are like, you know, more the physical assault. Of course, I mean, it's still, sure. you know, not okay, but it's not as severe. And psychological so aggression find... was... Yeah. Go ahead. So did you find um, that, did you ask any questions about uh, the circumstances of their of their physical assault? Uh, for example, were they defending themselves or did they just uh, lose their tempers? Or did you look into anything about what, no, what caused? No, no. Oh, no, yeah, okay. No, so that's, that's, you know, we did not really, that's exactly <laughs> why we did not, exactly, exactly. Yeah. We need to le- to learn a little bit more about the dynamics, the couple dynamics that actually lead to those, yeah. you know, violent behaviors. Sure. So you mentioned that you what, what led you to do this study is that you had been working with this population of, of uh, young adolescents. Um, I guess that's redundant, isn't it? That you'd been working with a, a similar populations of adolescents and you wanted to actually document what was going on and do a formal study on it. Do you still work with adolescents? Yes, I do. Um, I still do. Um, it just, you know, unfortunately, you know, funding is always an issue and kind yeah. of determine whether or not you can do all this work uh, and as I mentioned to you, that funding uh, ended before we actually completed our study, unfortunately. And so we were limited in terms of what we were able, how much data we were able to collect. We do have some data that looks at IPV at postpartum, but the sample for the postpartum is smaller. But we will still look into that and see what does it, you know, kind of, you know, what do we see? And a decrease and increase will be interesting to see what does IPV look like, you know, six weeks after delivery. But then, yes, you know, it would be so nice to have more funding to really design a more longitudinal study to see the fluctuations of uh, IPV over time with couples. Yeah. So having done this study, and, and I recognize, I, I understand that you didn't get everything that you, you had hoped to when you started the study, um, but seeing what you did get what kind have you gotten a lot of of uh interest in your study has have other people been contacting you have organizations been interested in what this means in order to tailor programs what kind of of reception have you received with this study so, yeah, you know, so I presented, you know, an abstract at several um, conferences and, you know, people stopped by and were also kind of surprised by the prevalence of perpetration and, um, you know, kind of were interested, you know, to learn some more. I was able to share the information in our community. Um, and see, like, what really, you know, I'm concerned about, and again, you know, it's always an issue of funding. We have so many bad, um, so many worse maternal outcomes. You know, like I know, you know, here in Texas, you know, our maternal morbidity and mortality is worse than many developmental countries. And so when we talk about, you know, mortality and morbidity of, you know, pregnant, you know, women, we do tend to look at, like, blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, 
Predominantly looking, I think, into the role of intimate partner violence in, you know, in this. And we know that women experiencing IPV during pregnancy are less likely to comply with prenatal care. They're more likely to experience preterm labor, more likely to have babies with low birth weight, more likely to have IPV at postpartum period. However, we are not focusing enough on those issues. And so how do we get that message across to those who make decisions about funding and about priorities? Well, it seems like, you know, this is my rant about our our American culture. We seem to, to... fixate on something, swing the pendulum all the way over to one side, and then swing the pendulum all the way over to the other side and drop it. Um, (laughs) We don't seem to um, maintain consistent interest, consistent funding for uh, different topics. We tend to go for whatever is new, hot, popular, even when we're talking about things like research. And that's a shame because many of these issues like adolescent pregnancy, like inter- like yeah. intimate partner violence, they they are not trendy topics. They are there, and they're parts of everyday life for so many people. Um, it's a shame that, you know, mm-hmm. it, it has to be some sort of almost a popularity contest in order to get funding for it. Um, but nevertheless, that's right. what we work with, isn't it? Yeah. Right. So um, right. in... I, yeah, I want to get back to a little bit about your study because I know you didn't get the information, all of the information you wanted, but what kinds of conclusions were you able to make about your study from your findings? Yeah, yeah. so one uh, thing I did not mention when we looked at uh, risk factors uh, is that we also used a parenting um, scale and we asked the pregnant teens about their attitudes towards various, you know, practices, parenting practices. And so what we found, although we, you know, because it was not a longitudinal study, so we could not, you know, measure the impact on babies. But what we found, you know, based on the parenting scale, that those who uh, were perpetrators of physical, of physical assault or those who actually reported reciprocal, you know, physical assault, they were uh, less likely to consider alternatives instead of like physical punishment on children. So they have they had more punitive attitudes when it comes to how to nurture and how to discipline children, which is a scary thought because if you have those attitudes, how will it affect parenting outcomes such as warmth, sensitivity, and responsive caregiving? And so how will it really, you know, um, allow a child to grow up in a nurturing environment. And we have seen this before, that you know, studies that demonstrated the presence of IPV during the first six months of a child's life are more likely, the children are more likely to experience physical child abuse. And so I think that study really brings also to the surface the devastating outcome that can really affect the children. Yeah. And, again, we talk about that whole cycle. You know, it just keeps going and going and going. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and I know your study didn't go into this, but I also know that you have worked with adolescents, and this is a field that you are interested in. What can we do about this? Right. So, so first of all, I think it's important to recognize exactly what you said, you know, the intergenerational transmission, you know, of violence. 
and how exposure to violence in childhood or in life can predict, you know, that you will also experience IPV in adulthood. So for us as a society to really, you know, learn to recognize how IPV is so devastating and how it is really intergenerational and how it is important for us to really interrupt that cycle. So with pregnant teens, what, you know, recognizing the detrimental health outcomes that, you know, we were able to document in the study, in regard to victimization and perpetration, we have to screen adolescents who are pregnant, you know, for IPV. And so when we screen them for IPV, not only do we screen for what we usually do is like for victimization, but we also have to screen for perpetration because it is present and it is very um, um, risky in terms of the impact to children. So we have to, you know, when we, you know, see the teens and, you know, pregnant teens, you know, in general, pregnant women go to get medical care very often. So that can be a great opportunity to screen for various forms of IPV and intervene. You know, we have to, you know, better understand, you know, what forms of uh, violence, you know, affecting the pregnant teens. And we have to, like what we do, we collaborate with family violence service providers in our community that provide, you know, um, counseling and shelter services and find a way to, you know, you know, make sure that we provide referrals to teens who are affected. We have to train, you know, staff at those, you know, facilities to recognize signs of violence, to communicate with victims in a way, you know, that will really increase the likelihood for disclosure because we know that the way we ask a question can determine whether or not, you know, the, you know, uh, the teen will actually disclose you know, kind of that, you know, experience. And we have to really, you know, teach our providers to really know how to deal in a more creative way. Something really nice that we have done with this program, but again, it's always an issue of funding, is I'm not sure if you're familiar with the centering pregnancy approach to prenatal care. Are you familiar with it? No, I'm not. Centering pregnancy? Okay, cool. So let me tell you, centering pregnancy, you know, is basically it's a group um, model for prenatal care, and it replaces conventional individual prenatal care with a group model. So what we do is we form groups of 8 to 12 pregnant women with similar delivery dates, and we provide a great curriculum to them. And what we have done is we have always invited male partners to participate or family. And so it's so important to engage partners because if we engage partners and we teach them about relationship and communication, they are more likely to provide social support and are more likely to find peaceful way to resolve any conflict. So we have knowledge about effective approaches to, in, to improve outcome. We just always have to find a way to actually implement those. From a practical standpoint, though, gosh, we're asking healthcare to do a lot. Yes. Um, healthcare and education. Sometimes I almost feel like there's so much that the doctor's office and the um, schools are expected to provide in addition to just the regular old stuff. How do they have time to do it all? I, I you know, we're asking so much. Yeah, but, you know, um, we have to provide services that are patient-centered, that are patient-centered, that are comprehensive and holistic. In order for us to really improve, you know, health outcomes, we cannot only focus on the physical aspect. We have to address behavioral health. 
And if we really teach, you know, providers to be patient-centered, there are ways to do it in a way that would not, would not be so time-consuming, yes, effective. But we have to provide patient-centered care because, you know, there need to be the understanding that the health outcome are affected by behavioral health. And so we are not going to really make progress with improving health outcomes unless we address those issues. And there are ways to do it in a more efficient way, that we don't have to repeat everything, but we can check in with the patient and assess what they know and what gaps exist so then we can, you know, focus on those gaps and we don't have to do all of it. Okay, and those Uh, ways are like doing these groups that you're talking about. Yeah, um, doing the groups, you know, kind of checking in, you know, like what do they know about certain things that, you know, we don't have to repeat, you know, educate about everything, but just like ask them what do they know and just identify gaps and then, you know, kind of go from there. So there are efficient ways to prevent, to provide patient-centered care that can be uh, efficient. But we have to know that for us to really address the needs of a population, we have to be holistic and we have to be patient-centered. And we have to learn how to do it. Yeah, I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a minute here. Um, You made a statement that IPV is harmful. Um, It's hard to argue with that, but I'm going to, just to play a devil's advocate. Um, Uh If we're talking a slap, if we're talking um, a a little push or whatever, um, generations past considered those useful discipline tools useful interpersonal relationship tools. Um, But now we don't. Um, But could somebody make an argument that, you know, if if my partner does something and I don't, I don't like it, um, and I mean, I'm thinking back to the Doris Day movies. I mean, she was always slapping Rock Hudson across the face, and that was socially acceptable Mm -hmm. at that point. Rock Hudson slapping her across the face was not acceptable. But you know what I'm saying? is it always harmful? You know, is a, a physical response, is it a psychological response, a response that we consider IPV, do we always have to get rid of it? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think I so. I, I know. <laughs> yeah, you thought you suspected. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. you see the whole idea of corporate punishment is so negative because what message are we sending kids? You know, we're sending kids a message that's okay to hit someone you love. And kids observe and kids internalize. So if we are not going to learn how to use peaceful ways to resolve disagreements, and if we are not going to learn to negotiate and to really allow each other to present the side, you know, the story, and to disagree in a peaceful way, and we will always try to use more like, you know, physical measures, we are definitely going to continue that cycle. And so this is what we have to do. We have to teach, you know, young people to communicate in a more respectful and peaceful way and to replace, you know, measures that are aggressive with measures that are peaceful. And so and, and so where would you like really, you know, you know, it's all of that slippery slope. So a little shove is okay, but then if I go a little bit further, that's not okay. How do you create clear messages and clear boundaries? Well, and one of the things that you, we we didn't spend a lot of time talking about, but it probably merits it, is the whole... Uh, parenting attitudes from the the, right. the female adolescents who were perpetrators. They're carrying those, and, and I, I threw out the somewhat ridiculous question about is, is it always harmful? Yeah. Um, because you yeah. will find people who say, no, I slap my kid's hands and it's fine. I give my kid a spanking and it's fine. And, and, and I could even argue in certain circumstances maybe it is. You know, I don't, I don't know. But as a general rule, I think everybody's in agreement that it is not. But yet you have this group of young women whose parenting attitudes reflect that they, in fact, do think 
that it's okay, that that kind of violence is going to be okay, and they're carrying that over to a next generation. So, right. the, you know, from what I we've talked about with your study, I mean, it's it's been kind of, you know, wow, this has been news to me. I've not seen this before. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show is to talk about this because I just haven't seen this before. Um, but also from the standpoint of the attitudes, the parenting attitudes that these young women who are perpetrators are going to be carrying in to parenting their babies. That's what is really um, uh, impactful about this. Is that even a word, impactful? I know people use it, but is it a word? I don't know. It is. is. (laughs) I don't know if it's made into the dictionary yet. No, it's legitimate. (laughs) It's legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, So, you know, it would be interesting, and, and that brings me to my next question to you, which is, Yes, you know, funding is always an issue for this, but do you have ideas of what kind of research you want to do next to follow up on this study um, if and when researching becomes available? What do you think needs to come next to learn in order to further address this problem that was re- revealed in your your partial study? Yeah. So, so again, you know, I would love to be able, you know, to analyze the data that I already have on IPV in the postpartum stage. So hopefully, I hope I can do that. And so we just really need, you know, like, like we talked about some of those limitations that I did not really study or we did not study, like what is, what is the couple dynamics prior to really using, you know, violence. So to better understand the background to engage in violence would actually lead to really using those measures to measure so better understand the context you know that kind of really then lead to our perpetration and of course I mean you know that research that is like a cross-sectional design that just takes information one point in time is not strong to really help you understand you know fully you know a, a, an issue so we need to have like to have longitudinal study to really look into that over different points in time and see how IPV fluctuates between pregnancy and what happens, actually what happens, you know, at postpartum when you have a child and maybe six months later and maybe 12 months later. So I would have loved to do like a longitudinal study. And so that study also, you know, we did it with teens who are 15 to 18. So I would love to replicate it with teens, but like maybe young adults, like 18 and over, to see what happens, you know, with this age group. And I have the, I did not look at like sexual abuse, and I told you because I was not sure how we're going to deal with that, you know, disclosure. Sure. But you know, when it comes to older teens, we can definitely look at the sexual abuse, and it would be so nice if we can also actually do a study where we can get, you know, the male perspective. Because see, that was that study was based on like her perception of you know, what the partner did and what she did. But it would be nice to actually obtain the data from the actual partner to see what he perceived to be the issue. So to get a partner perspective would be also very important. Yeah. Well, and I think it would be crucial to to get the information on what precipitated um, the the violence on the part of the the female perpetrator. Uh, what precipitated Because yep. it would be a whole different story yep. if he's threatening her and then she reacts as opposed to she's just yep. in a mood and she initiates. I mean, I think that's right. a, a completely different different ball of wax when you're talking about trying to deal with that issue. Um, so, yeah, that right. would be crucial. I think what would be really fascinating, I think, would be to be able to follow these families for 20 years yeah. and find Over. out oh, yeah. from... <laughs> The That's children, right. from, yep. you know, what happens yeah. with the children. Wouldn't that yeah. be uh, amazing? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, again, you know, part of the value in a study like this is to shape social response. You're talking yes. about all sorts of different ways that, that physicians' offices and prenatal care can address some of these issues, but that doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't happen without lots exactly. and lots of motivation. 
And so mm-hmm. that's what all the value in these, these studies is, is that we can start accumulating little pictures that can make a big picture that can eventually convince, um, you know, changes in the way services are rendered. And um, right. that that sounds to me like, so this is just a, a little tiny uh, uh, door opening, just a little tiny crack to reveal something on the other side. And it's kind of frustrating, it isn't, isn't it, that we can't open the door all the way to see what really truly is, yeah. uh, is on that other side. So we can do something right. about it, you know. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So has this study been, are you aware of any way that the study is being currently used or looked at? Um, so I get, you know, uh, many requests, you know, to get a copy of the paper. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to present it. Um, there is, you know, an interest um, in the findings. Uh, but again, I would like to see how I can use that to really shape, you know, some interventions or to make the point as to why this is so important and why this is something that we cannot ignore. And so I think, you know, what I would conclude and say that, you know, we know that pregnant adolescents in general, they face multiple, you know, kind of challenges when they're pregnant. And there are many risk factors that may compromise their health and birth outcome. And then what we saw that a significant portion of pregnant adolescents in our study engage in perpetuation of IPV, they had those, you know, very unfavorable attitudes towards more nurturing practices when it comes to parenting. And so that definitely can pose a major concern about children's emotional well-being and cognitive ability. And so, yeah, and so what is it in society we can do that? How can I really get, you know, how can we? get that message across and how we can, you know, make the case of continuing um, funding opportunities specifically, you know, targeting pregnant teens, which is such a vulnerable population. We have done a great job in this country to reduce, you know, rates of teen pregnancy. However, we still have one of the highest rates in, you know, in the, you know, in kind of, you know, among development, you know, kind of advanced, you know, Western, you know, societies. So, but we just we still have an issue. So, how are we really addressing those issues, and how are we engaging, you know, our communities, partners, schools, you know, in programs to reduce risk and adverse health outcomes among this vulnerable population? Well, and I think the idea of looking at this particular aspect of pregnancy, this particular risk area, because I don't think anybody will argue that pregnancy is um, a higher risk time for almost everything. Uh, it usually, no matter how wonderful the pregnancy is, no matter how happy people are about a pregnancy, it's still a time of stress. And uh, sometimes people react differently to stress. You know, I mean, sometimes, especially yeah. if it's an unplanned pregnancy, the stress is even higher. Financial right. support, um, you know, adding another person to a family, trying to figure out how am I going to work and save the baby. Sometimes there's a jealousy issue involved, either with other siblings or even with partners. So pregnancy itself is a time of pretty high stress. You add the adolescence there, and it's even higher, and that's just a recipe for things to go wrong, uh, including uh, interpersonal violence or intimate partner violence. So um, it's it's just a really high-risk time for everyone involved, and I think it behooves us all to pay a great deal of attention to this time, especially for those young folks that are they're they're still not fully cooked themselves, you know. Um, My Mm -hmm. sister, who... You know, my my dear sister who has passed away, but she raised three children. She always said, your kids don't even become human beings until they're 25. (laughs) That's true. And I think in some respects that's that's true, isn't it? Yeah, because brain brain studies really suggest that full maturation of the brain does not take place until 25. Right, 
So, you know, my sister was right. So, you know, the eggs aren't even yeah. cooked until they're 25. And and exactly. if you throw in pregnancy with those, you know, eggs that still aren't quite cooked, and, you know, it's just a, yeah. a real recipe, a real difficult time for all involved. So I appreciate your study to show us a little tiny uh, picture of, of something else that's going on that perhaps a lot of people haven't heard about or haven't read about. Dr. Buzzy, our time is almost up. We've got about a minute left. I don't want us to end the show without you having a chance uh, to just at least briefly leave us with whatever thought you would like to leave us with. So I'm so pleased that the study got your attention. So I see this is hopeful, and I hope that maybe others will kind of see that study and maybe they will trigger some interest into looking into it. And so I hope as a society we really can find a way to make it a priority. So I really want to thank, thank you so, so much. much for making time yeah. for this. And again, for people who are interested in looking up the study, you can just Google it. Pregnant Adolescents as Perpetrators and Victims of Intimate Partner Violence by Ruth S. Buzzy, Peggy B. Smith, Claudia Kazanetz, and Constance Weeman. So really, if you're going to Google it, all you really need is that the title. And thank you so author, much for bringing up Ruth yeah. Buzzy. And thank you so much thank for bringing you. up my co-authors. Okay. Thank well, you so thank much. You. I really appreciate and, that. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, thank you. And thank you so okay, much for joining you. us on Three Women, Three Ways. Join us next week. Bye-bye.